Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Friday. You've made it to the end of the week. Well done. It is the 21st of May. I'm Tom Tilley and on today's briefing, how to talk to a conspiracy theorist. We see shapes in cloud patterns. We see Jesus in a toasted cheese sandwich. When we see random things happen around the same time, it's human nature to think that one causes the other. As you'll find out, understanding why people gravitate towards these theories actually helps you connect with them. Conspiracy theories tend to be quite simple. It's usually this villain who has this nefarious plot. How to talk to a conspiracy theorist, that is our briefing topic in just a moment. First, Katrina Blouse is here with today's headlines. Well, we've got big news on the Israel-Gaza conflict. The Office of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has given a statement saying they've accepted an Egyptian proposal for a mutual ceasefire with Hamas. This comes after increased pressure from the US and the ceasefire, according to media reports uh, from both sides, uh, is saying that it's expected to start at 2am Friday their time, which is 9am Australian Eastern Standard Time. So it may have already begun, depending what time you're listening to this episode of The Briefing. Yeah, now if this goes ahead, this ceasefire will end the 11-day conflict, which has so far killed 232 Palestinians in Gaza and 12 Israelis, mostly civilians. This has been the deadliest conflict since 2014. Our doctors are saying Australians will remain sitting ducks until more people get the COVID jab and we urgently need a much better information campaign to convince people to get it. What's been happening recently, the messaging um, has been very solid in terms of the actual uh, information, but relatively dry, if I could put it that way. What we need is actually stuff that connects with people. That was Vice President of the Australian Medical Association, Chris Moy there. I don't know what you think about this, Katrina, but I don't think it's just the information campaigns that they, you know, put in these government advertisements. It's also media reporting and and much Mm. more deeply held attitudes and genuine fears around blood clots. I think so too. And um, mixed messaging coming from everywhere, as you say, with I think a lot of older Australians and and many doctors are saying this too, older Australians are kind of holding out on getting AstraZeneca because they think that another alternative vaccine might be made available to them later on this year. Um, I think too, as we, you know, get more reports of blood clots each day, So far, 21 Australians are confirmed to have developed clots from AstraZeneca. But we should also point out that that is out of more than 2.1 million doses that have been given so far. Yeah, and that was the rate roughly that we heard from overseas and from the research as well. So people need to keep that in perspective. So that's about 10 cases per 1 million doses. So the risk is extremely low. Dr Norman Swan made an interesting argument Uh, yesterday that basically if we set a target for opening up our international borders, that will actually incentivise people to get the vaccine because we're kind of in a catch-22. At the moment, there's no COVID in Australia, so there's no real upside at the moment in taking the vaccine, but people see the downside as, you know, this risk of getting a blood clot. So until we actually open the border, that equation doesn't change for people. That's right. And Labor leader Anthony Albanese has also been calling for more consistency from the government when it comes to advertising. Vaccinations is essential. The government needs to send that clear message rather than a different message every day. 
So it'll be interesting to see what these campaigns are like, Tom, whether they'll employ some celebrity influencers. Uh, Mm. The PM has ruled out using younger people, but then other doctors are saying, look, it's the younger people who are going to convince their parents to to go and get the jab. So um, we'll wait with bated breath. I think what might change it is what happens overseas where you see these other countries really open up. I think when people start seeing European holiday snaps of people cruising around the Mediterranean, that might be the game changer. Get FOMO. And the tourism and hospitality sectors here in Australia are struggling to find workers. Yeah, tourism and restaurant operators say they're having to even scale back their operations because of staff shortages as job vacancies in the sector increase. Yeah, and this is because of the border closure and they can't get the foreign workers in who normally do those jobs. Um, it is it is putting pressure on the employment market in a good way, though. It's actually helping drive down unemployment. Um, yesterday, we got new figures. We're down to 5.5%. So getting even closer to the figures from the end of 2019 of 5.1%. And youth unemployment's been going down as well. It's at 10.6%, its lowest point since 2009. Which I guess uh, on the face of it looks amazing, but a lot of people are saying that the devil is always in the detail and there's a lot of underemployment. So for young people in particular, while they are still getting shifts, they're not getting as many as they were pre-COVID. And a very juicy royal tale, which you know I love. This one involves Princess Diana (laughs) and an apology overnight from the BBC. This is unbelievable. An inquiry into that sensational 1995 interview with Princess Diana, which has been played and replayed many, many times since, has found that the journalist Martin Bashir lied to get that story and then the broadcaster covered it up. Yeah, it's incredible. So this interview was played to 23 million people at the time and many millions since. Um, Here is one of the most famous moments from that interview. Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Yeah, so this investigation found that Bashir, the journalist, used fake bank statements um, when he was trying to set up a meeting with Diana. Um, He got these bank statements mocked up and showed them to Diana's brother, Earl Spencer, basically saying that um, other media outlets were paying other members of the royal family for information, so Diana needed to have her say. See, that is so unbelievable because it's a step beyond just telling like a little white lie to get an interview. He, he actually went to the effort of getting fake documents mocked mm. up and then showing them to Diana's brother. Um, that report also found BBC bosses failed to scrutinise how Bishy had even got the interview in what amounted to a cover-up. Well, if you were running the show, you'd just be pretty happy you got the interview, right? But I guess you you have a bit of a responsibility because it was pretty out of the blue for her to speak out like that. Um, And the BBC has such high standards. for So for them to turn a blind eye to this is is what makes this so extraordinary. And they've had to now hand back every award they ever received for that interview, which includes a BAFTA. I can't wait to see how they investigate Oprah, how she got the interview with Meghan and Harry, what what she did. Was it, did she give him the chooks? <laughs> Help build the chook pen? Was there a bribe? And remember this sound, Katrina? It doesn't that tank you back. Oh my goodness, that's the sound of anticipation of sitting there on the edge of your seat wondering, am I going to connect? Am I going to be able to look up a boy band? <laughs> or a bulletin board? Um, that was the sound of the internet back in... The 90s, and one of the icons from that period was the Internet Explorer browser launched in 1995, and Microsoft have just announced that 
it's coming to an end. Yeah, apparently um, they're losing out to new competitors like Google Chrome, which I've got to admit that's that's kind of what I always mm. use. Uh, Microsoft says it will continue to compete with Google with its newer Edge browser. What a great name, Edge. Very mm. edgy. Don't know how that'll go. Thank you so much for joining us um, for three briefings this week, Katrina. My pleasure. We'll catch you another time soon. Coming up after this message from our sponsor, Annika Smethurst joins us as we learn how to speak to a conspiracy theorist. All right, today's briefing could be pretty helpful over the weekend, depending on who you'll be hanging out with, maybe um, which uncles you'll be running into at a family gathering. It's how to talk to a conspiracy theorist or basically someone that doesn't trust science or is spewing misinformation about vaccines or thinks Bill Gates or 5G caused COVID. What do you do? I mean, if you argue the facts, you get dragged down bizarre rabbit holes that they've researched and no one else has. Or if you ignore them, potentially they get more isolated and spread more misinformation within an echo chamber. It's really hard if someone doesn't trust science or peer-reviewed academic research. And Professor John Cook has looked into how to deal with someone who doesn't believe in the basic way we put facts together in our society. He's from the Centre for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University in the US. His book's called Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change. Annika joins me now as we interview Professor Cook. Professor Cook, thanks for joining us. Why do conspiracy theories gain traction? There's a number of different uh, reasons why conspiracy theories can be appealing. One is because when people do feel anxious, uh, when you have something big and threatening like a pandemic, particularly something that's random and doesn't have a good explanation, conspiracy theories can be quite comforting because they offer a organized explanation for why things are happening. Counterintuitively, people find that more comforting than the idea of random events um, threatening us. That might be the appeal, but how do they start? Is there somebody out there who just throws this idea out there for fun? Or do we think the people that, I guess, where this originates actually believe this and it just takes traction naturally? Conspiracy theories can start in a number of different ways, but they can totally start naturally. One of the other elements of human psychology lending itself to conspiracy theories is that humans are natural pattern detectors. We see patterns in randomness all the time. Uh, All of us do to some degree. We see shapes in cloud patterns. We see Jesus in a toasted cheese sandwich. And when we see random things happen around the same time, it's human nature to think that one causes the other. And so that pattern detection can uh, lead to people thinking that A causes B when they actually have nothing to do with each other. And those spurious causal links, as as I guess scientists would call it, tend to um, form uh, conspiracy theories. Yeah, so that goes to how we really interpret data and information. I guess that's harder than ever with so much information coming at us through the internet. Does it mean that the more education you have, because I remember, you know, going to university, studying statistics, you know, learning about concepts like correlation and interpreting data points, um, kind of helped me see what's going on in the world and be able to at least sense when something was just anecdotal versus, you know, representing a, a much deeper trend. Is there a link between education and susceptibility to 
conspiracy theories? That's a good question. Uh, it, it kind of depends on the topic. Generally speaking, the, the better educated people are, the more they are able to avoid some of those fallacies like patent detection out of randomness. But there's also been some really interesting research in the case of climate denial that have found that as people get more educated, that doesn't necessarily mean that they become more accepting of climate change. In the US, they found that Democrats became more accepting of climate change as they, as they got more educated, but Republicans didn't. And so what the researchers concluded was as people acquire more education and skills and knowledge, they actually learn how to justify their confirmation biases and their pre-existing beliefs anyway. They kind of acquire skills to, to argue better. Uh, and in the case of climate change, at least, where confirmation bias and ideology can be quite strong, uh, education doesn't necessarily help with that. I wanted to know how these theories are sort of spruiked. I'm talking about some of the uh, more, I guess now, older ones I've seen, like we didn't land on the moon or the September 11 world trade attacks didn't happen. They were part of a sort of worldwide hoax. I almost fell for the moon one. So what's important Hmm. when trying to, I guess, sell the idea? What do you have to plant in people's mind and, and what sort of repetitions do we see that are important to hold up the fact that you know, to promote this idea that there's a conspiracy? There are a few elements to conspiracy theories that do make them quite easy to sell. Uh, One is that they usually contain villains. That makes them quite compelling stories. Another is that conspiracy theories tend to be quite simple. Well, they're both super complicated, but the narrative is simple. It's it's usually this villain who has this nefarious plot. People tend to be attracted to simple explanations over complicated explanations. In a way, these these simple stories with compelling characters can go quite viral because all humans are attracted to stories. Yeah, well, I'm actually writing my my own book at the moment about growing up in a in a Pentecostal sect, and it mirrors a lot of these same sort of concepts and behaviours of thinking that everyone else is wrong and you somehow got the right interpretation of the Bible and any data point you see in the world can then attach to this very simple idea. Now, talking someone out of that way of thinking is, is almost impossible when it you know, attaches to religious fervor. That's very difficult. But in general, if you have someone in your life who holds a view that is a conspiracy theory and it's wrong, but they really believe in it. What do you do? How do you approach them? That's extremely difficult in the same way as as your experience, because conspiracy theorists are immune to evidence. Any information you can give them that contradicts the conspiracy theory, they will reinterpret that evidence as actually coming from the conspiracy rather than disproving the conspiracy, they'll conclude, aha, well, that's exactly what you would expect the conspirators to have produced. So how do you change a person's mind when their belief system is so self-sealing and and nothing can penetrate it? It is incredibly difficult, just as difficult as changing a cult member's mind. And there are various approaches that you can try, although I will preface them by saying it's still really difficult. Dial down your expectations if you are <laughs> talking to a conspiracy theorist because 
Otherwise, you'll get very frustrated if, if you're not making progress. Uh, but I think two approaches that can be quite, at least give you a, a chance is firstly, empathy rather than ridicule. Don't um, go into a conversation making fun of them or, or confronting them. Rather, I think approaching a conversation with curiosity and empathy and appealing to common values uh, can be a fruitful approach, in particular, the common value of critical thinking. If you can encourage them to apply that critical thinking they um, like to think that they have and point it at their actual conspiracy theory, at the evidence for it, is it consistent? Maybe you can make headway there, although it's still unlikely. What's the biggest mistake you can make when you try to talk to someone who holds uh, conspiracy theory views? Maybe it's assuming that you your, the power of your intellect will be successful in changing their <laughs> mind. We need a bit of humility and, and recognising that we may not be as persuasive as we think we are. And by dialing down your expectations, you can at least be a little calmer and less frustrated in the conversation. Are you worsening the situation if you end up sort of ostracising this person? I mean, that can be unavoidable, like, depending on how far down the rabbit hole a person has gone. It may be that the whole exercise is futile anyway. It really depends on the person and the context. Like I will say this, like from personal experience, my dad is not a conspiracy theorist, but he was a climate denier. And we would have conversations about climate change and I get quite frustrated with him um, because even though I can advise people, be calm, be rational, that kind of goes out the window when you're arguing with your own dad. Hmm. What I didn't realise at the time was this wasn't a single conversation. It was a series of conversations in a relationship. And over a period of years, eventually he changed his mind about climate change. Uh, and I don't know if there was any specific argument or point or bit of evidence that that changed his mind. It was, I think it's just having an ongoing relationship with a person is important too. That was Professor John Cook from George Mason Uni in the US. Um, hope you got something practical out of that. And truthfully, I hope you don't have to use any of that over the weekend. <laughs> Maybe you will. All right, speaking of the weekend, the weekend briefing will be in your feed from tomorrow with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila Rizvi, who have you got on this week? Hey, Tom. I am really excited about tomorrow's weekend briefing. I have had a really special conversation with Rick Morton, who is a journalist and author and whose new book, My Year of Living Vulnerably, is seriously making some waves. You've probably already had it recommended to you, if not bought for you. In our discussion, we talk about what it is to be a man in 21st century Australia. We talk about stereotypes and expectations. We talk about queer role models and what it's like to grow up with a dad who isn't that interested in finding you any. And we talk about what it's like to grow up poor. And I don't think that conversation is had enough in Australia. We talk about all kinds of intersectionalities, but we often don't just talk about money and the fact that some of us have more than others and some people in Australia really are struggling to get by. Rick is someone who grew up living not just week to week, but day to day. 
and his insights are really fascinating. Rick Morton going deep uh, about his book on the Weekend Briefing tomorrow. Thank you so much, Jamila. And a big shout out to our hardworking team that make the briefing uh, what it is. Executive producer Dan Mullins, producers Brooke Loudner and Liam Kennedy, editor Matt Curry and supervising producers Nick McClure and Sam Kavnar. Have an amazing weekend. I'll catch you Monday. Listener.